Good evening. The president praises his gun deal but meets protests from loved ones of children who've been killed. The Supreme Court in COVID. We get an update and duck and cover in New York City. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, July 11th, 2022. President Joe Biden welcomed the crowd to the White House lawn today to showcase a new law meant to reduce gun violence, celebrating real progress after years of inaction. But he also lamented the country remains awash in weapons of war with the 16-day-old law already overshadowed by yet another horrific mass shooting. The bill, after mass killings in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas, incrementally toughens requirements for young people buying guns, denies firearms to more domestic abusers, and helps local authorities temporarily take weapons from people judged to be dangerous. But Biden's speech and the legislation he supports didn't impress everyone listening on the White House lawn. Manuel Oliver, whose son Joaquin was killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, interrupted Biden during his speech. He said, you're not doing enough. Will we take wise steps to fulfill the responsibility to protect the innocent and while keeping faith with the constitutional rights? Will we match thoughts and prayers with action? I say yes. And that's what we're doing here today. Today's many things is proof that despite the naysayers, we can make meaningful progress on dealing with gun violence. Because make no mistake, sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. If you think you. Let him talk. Let him talk. No one. Okay. Because make no mistake about it, this legislation is real progress, but more has to be done. The provision of this new legislation is going to save lives and is proof that today's politics, we can come together on a bipartisan basis. President Biden, the president hosted hundreds of guests on the South Lawn, including a bipartisan group of lawmakers who crafted and supported the legislation, state and local officials, including Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker and Highland Park Mayor Nancy Rotering, and the families of victims of both mass shootings and everyday gun violence. Most of the new law's $13 billion in spending would be used for bolstering mental health programs and for schools, which have been targeted by shooters in Newtown, Connecticut, and Parkland. The law was the product of weeks of closed-door negotiations by bipartisan group of senators who emerged with a compromise. And just moments ago, the Biden administration embraced another controversial topic, telling hospitals they must provide abortion services if the life of the mother is at risk. The Department of Health and Human Services says federal law and emergency treatment guidelines preempt state law under which the procedure is now banned. The department says its directive doesn't reflect new policy, but merely reminding doctors of their existing obligations under federal law. And last week, the Supreme Court ruled in another religious case where the three most conservative justices were in the minority. On Thursday, the court left in place New York State's coronavirus vaccine requirements for healthcare workers that drew a challenge over its lack of a religious exemption. The court's order came on the final day of its term. In December, the court had rejected an emergency request from doctors, nurses, and other medical workers who said they were being forced to choose between their livelihoods and their faith. The three judges on the losing side for the first time this term, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Clarence Thomas. Thomas wrote that the 16 healthcare workers who sued served New York communities throughout the pandemic 
and object on religious grounds to all available COVID-19 vaccines because they were, quote, developed using cell lines derived from aborted children, unquote. The state countered that the vaccines do not contain aborted fetal cells. The case joins two other concerning vaccine mandates decided by the court that leave a nuanced trail, with the court banning OSHA from mandating shots while allowing mandates for health workers. Timothy Jost is an emeritus professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law. He says the court seems to have had their fill of controversial religious decisions for this term. The Supreme Court had two mandate cases this year. I mean, there's a lot of cases popping around, but one of the cases was the OSHA mandate requiring employers to either require vaccinations or take other precautionary measures. And the Supreme Court in that case held that OSHA didn't have any authority to impose a vaccine mandate or a mandate to prevent disease. The other case was the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services mandate for health workers. And there the Supreme Court held uh, in a divided opinion. All of these opinions have been divided opinions. And the Supreme Court held there that the federal government, that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services did have the authority to impose a mandate on healthcare workers, which is still in effect, although enforcement has been moving fairly slowly. I mean, voluntary compliance has been very high, but enforcement in situations where people aren't complying has been moving slowly. The case I thought you were calling about was the Dr. A versus Hochul case that the Supreme Court refused to hear last week. And that was a case where the plaintiffs had claimed that they were being denied their rights of religious freedom because the New York healthcare workers mandate does not provide for a religious exemption. It only provides for a health exemption for people who, for health reasons, can't get vaccinated. The case claimed that that discriminated against people uh, on the basis of their religious belief and the Supreme Court decided not to hear that case. The mandate remains in effect. There were three dissenters, the three furthest right members of the court, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. They thought the Supreme Court should decide the case. They thought this was a clear case of discriminating on the basis of religion because they did allow a exception for people who had medical needs, but they didn't allow one for people who objected religiously. Now, there are other cases that are kind of bubbling up, but those are the ones that have reached the Supreme Court so far. Do they show a pattern? The Dr. A case, the case where they just denied cert, I can imagine a couple of things that are going on, although I don't know. One is they see this as one of many areas where states should be regulating it rather than the federal government when they're in lots of other cases saying, well, the federal government shouldn't be regulating this because it should be up to the states. It's not surprising that when a state mandate comes to them, they decide not to throw it out. The other thing is that they had decided a couple of other 
very controversial religious freedom cases this term, and maybe they decided that's enough for right now. Timothy Jost is an emeritus professor at the Washington and Lee University School of Law. Meanwhile, in New York, the city's once fearsome vaccine mandate hasn't been enforced for months by Mayor Eric Adams for either city workers or private businesses. City Hall said last month, We've been focused on prioritizing education instead of enforcement when it comes to the private sector mandate, which is how we've been able to get more than 87 percent of all New Yorkers with their first dose to date. And last week, the mayor doubled down that testing and education was enough. You know, if we like it or not, we have to learn to live with COVID. And that means making smart choices, wear masks in areas where, you, where you're concerned. Make sure you get tested if you have any symptoms. Uh, make sure you take the, uh, the antivirus uh, when, you, when you feel the need to do so, when you are diagnosed. So these new variants are coming. We're watching closely every morning. We're watching closely, looking at the numbers, looking at the, the indicators uh, to make sure we can pivot and shift. And I believe we're doing a great job. You know, um, we're still able to rebound our economy. We're still able to keep our schools going and, and operating. This is what people want of me, you know. And so we are still focused very much on COVID. Mayor Eric Adams. Former Mayor Bill de Blasio unveiled the vaccine mandate for employees of private businesses in December, the most far-reaching local measure in the United States at the time. The mandate applied to about 184,000 businesses of all sizes with employees who work on site in New York City. Medical experts are mostly opposed to Mayor Adams' approach. Vaccine mandates and the enforcement of them are still essential, said Dr. Dennis Nash, an epidemiologist at the CUNY Graduate School of Public Health. And by the way, in New York City, there has been most recently 5.65 million cases in the city total, 69,118 deaths total in New York City. In Manhattan, 40,000, Kings County, almost 10,000, Suffolk County, 4,500, Nassau County, 4,000, and Westchester County had nearly 3,000 deaths since the beginning of the COVID epidemic. In a blast from the past, New York City launched a nuclear attack preparedness public service announcement today, saying it's best to be prepared, even if such a strike is unlikely. The 90-second video starts with shots of a destroyed city block. So there's been a nuclear attack, an announcer says. Don't ask me how or why. Just know that the big one has hit. Okay, so what do we do? attack. Don't ask me how or why, just know that the big one has hit, okay? So what do we do? There are three important steps that I want you to remember. Step one, get inside fast. You, your friends, your family, get inside. And no, staying in the car is not an option. You need to get into a building and move away from the windows. Step two, Stay inside. Shut all doors and windows. Have a basement? Head there. If you don't have one, get as far into the middle of the building as possible. If you were outside after the blast, get clean immediately. Remove and bag all outer clothing to keep radioactive dust or ash away from your body. Step three, stay tuned. Follow media for more information. Don't forget to sign up for Notify NYC for official alerts and updates. And don't go outside until officials say it's safe. 
All right? You've got this. The city's Department of Emergency Management didn't say if any factor in particular prompted the new PSA, but Commissioner Zach Iskall said in a statement, as the threat landscape continues to evolve, it is important that New Yorkers know we are preparing for any imminent threats and are providing them with the resources they need to stay safe and informed. The PSA comes after Russian President Vladimir Putin made unspecific warnings earlier this year about his country's nuclear arsenal amid deteriorating relations to the West over Moscow's ongoing war in Ukraine. It's not the first time the nuclear warnings have taken to the airwaves in American history or New York City history for that. In the 1950s, there was a flurry of bomb shelter construction and an active civil defense in New York and other major cities, including drills that had the city streets emptied as millions willingly took to underground bomb shelters. Schools were not immune, and as elementary students were taught to duck and cover. We must be ready every day, all the time, to do the right thing if the atomic bomb explodes. Duck and cover. and cover. That's the first thing to do. Duck, duck and cover. And cover. First, you duck. duck. And then, and you cover. You duck and duck. cover tight. And duck cover. and cover under the table. Duck. It's a bomb. And duck cover. and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You. And you. And you. And you. Duck. And cover. And in 1961, there was this warning broadcast on a popular radio station. Military authorities have advised us that an enemy attack by air is imminent. This is a red alert. You are advised to go to your nearest shelter area immediately. Find shelter. There is not time to leave the city. Keep your radio tuned to this place on the dial throughout the alert period for information. 99.5 FM, New York. The Department of Emergency Management says they aren't worried about frightening the public. Christina Farrell, the first deputy commissioner of emergency management, said, We know New Yorkers are resilient. New Yorkers like to get that information straightforward. I'm just throwing this in. You might remember uh, last year, I think it was, maybe the year before, there was a, a mistaken alert that went out in the state of Hawaii where everybody in the state got a message saying there was a nuclear missile attack on their state coming at the same moment. It was later, moments, hopefully later, found to be a mistake, a drill that went awry. And a federal judge today declined to delay the upcoming trial of Steve Bannon, a one-time advisor to former President Donald Trump, who faces contempt of Congress charges after refusing for months to cooperate with the House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Bannon is still scheduled to go on trial next week, despite telling the House committee late Saturday that he's now prepared to testify. It's unclear whether Bannon will again decline to appear before the committee with the trial pending. Bannon was also barred from asserting several potential defenses or calling House Speaker Nancy Pelosi or members of the House committee to the stand. The series of rulings by U.S. District Judge Carl Nichols left one of his attorneys complaining that the former White House senior official, now host of Bannon's War Room podcast, won't be able to defend himself at all. Barring an appeals court ruling or another delay, the trial will begin as the committee continues its high-profile hearings into the riot. Testimony by former White House aides has revealed new allegations that Trump knew the crowd was heavily armed and that he tried to join the people marching to the Capitol. Trump has repeatedly asserted executive privilege, even as a former president, to try to block witness testimony and the release of White House documents. The Supreme Court in January ruled against Trump's efforts to stop the National Archives from cooperating with the committee after a lower court judge noted in part, presidents are not kings. The select committee investigating the January 6th Capitol invasion will be holding a seventh meeting tomorrow. 
Tuesday, beginning at 12.45 p.m. And the story of an Italian labor leader who went missing in 1939 after organizing immigrant workers on the docks of Red Hook in Brooklyn, possibly murdered by an underworld organization known as Murder, Inc. His name was Pete Ponto, or Pietro in Italian, whose name was spray-painted on the walls of New York City for years before his body was found. Dove Pete Ponto, the graffiti asked, where is Pete Ponto? His death put a chill on rank-and-file union protests for decades. Longshoremen feared they too would end up dead for complaining about working conditions and corruption. Now and then, Ponto's name would appear in a union pamphlet, but workers secretly continued to scrawl his name in silent protests, even as Ponto faded from headlines and from history. But Dr. Joseph Sciorra, a scholar of Italian-American culture who helps run the Calandra Institute at City University of New York, fascinated by the tale of Ponto, decided to find his grave and tell a story. Dr. Sciorra joins WBAI today. Pete Panto was born in Brooklyn, and from what we can tell, he was sent back to Italy as a young man, and we see him coming to Ellis Island at least twice. At a certain point, he becomes involved in um, working on the docks and becomes involved in labor activism there. The International Longshoremen's Association Union at the time was incredibly corrupt. Not only was it in bed with organized crime, Albert Anastasia and Murder, Inc. in particular, but it was involved in the shape-up. Men had to line up every single day to get a job for the day, depending on your relationship to the union and the corruption that was there, whether you went to the barber that they got kickbacks from, whether you went to the, went to the grocery store from where the union got its kickback from, would determine to a large degree whether you were hired for the day. If you were somebody who was a quote-unquote troublemaker, who was protesting or grumbling about the labor conditions on the docks, and the docks here in New York City were one of the most dangerous places to work in the United States at that time. I think it was like the second highest area of labor in which accidents occurred. People were moving heavy packaging and boxes and, and it was falling and crushing people and things like that. Sometimes it's by accident and sometimes not by accident. Pete Panther became involved in organizing a rank and file organization that was combating the corrupt union, asking and trying to change a lot of the conditions on the docks, in the Brooklyn docks he was working on, in the Manhattan docks. The union and the goons that they were in bed with put significant amount of pressure on Panto and the other labor activists that he was collaborating with, trying to pay him off to stop doing the work that he was doing, the activism that he was doing. In 1939, come this Thursday, Panto was taken away and was eventually killed and murdered on that day, and his body wasn't found until 1941, several years later. While people continued to resist this idea that rank-and-file members wrote all, while he was missing, wrote on the walls of Brooklyn, where is Pete Panto, Dove Pete Panto, it definitely put a chill in labor activism on the Brooklyn docks for, for many years afterwards. They found the, the place where he was buried. Working with people, somebody like an author like Nathan Ward, who's written about the New York City docks, but also find a grave. <laughs> Type in Pete Panto and you can find his grave. It was very weird looking at the find a grave. It didn't seem like there was a headstone there. I went there with my son and we went to the plot. Lo and behold, there's no marker there. 
I just thought this was just a damn shame. Here was a guy who not only worked for laboring people, but gave his life for the working class struggle. And for one reason or the other, we don't know why, there's no marker there. But his story is sort of runs through some very popular movies. I heard about Panto through Arthur Miller's memoir, Time Bends, and he talks about it. And he wrote a play called The Hook, which is specifically about Panto. When he and Kazan went to Hollywood to pitch the film, the Hollywood moguls there said, well, if you switch the organized crime figures to communist, we'll do the film. Miller didn't want to do that. The film never got made. Kazan went on to do On the Waterfront. To what degree this memory of Panto was there, as people have debated. It's definitely something that, of course, after World War II, the investigations into corruption on the waterfront and the conditions on the waterfront became much more paramount in the, the local newspapers in New York City. And that were, came to Kazan, and he, he moved forward with it at that time. Dr. Joseph Sciorra is a scholar of Italian-American culture who helps run the Calandra Institute at City University of New York. Sciorra says he has the epitaph in mind for Panto's tombstone. is from the Longshoreman. It's the last two lines of a poem written by an anonymous Longshoreman for Panto's funeral 80 years ago, found in a dock worker's newsletter. It goes, drop hooks, all you Longshoremen, this Panto burial day. The working man from off the docks are martyr in the fray. Artist and educator Rebecca Goyette was invited to submit a work for the 6th Annual Nasty Women of Connecticut Exhibition at the Lyman Allen Art Museum in New London. Nasty Women art shows were initiated as a request on Facebook for women artists to create exhibitions during the Trump administration in a rebuke of his phrase, which was Nasty Women. And since then, there have been 40 such exhibitions around the world. Goyette's work was named My Snake is Bigger Than Your Snake. It was up for three days before the show's curators contacted Goyette to say it was getting too much attention, upsetting parents who wanted to take it down. There was a compromise. Another work submitted, a painting with a disclaimer and a QR code linked to the art, artwork that was removed, but still the work remains out of view. Rebecca Miles spoke to visual artist, educator, and curator Rebecca Goyette about the censorship. When I looked at it, you've got these incredible archetypes like the Lobster Queen, the Virgin Mary, the Snake Man. Uh, and what I took from it is that you're dealing with life matters. You show death and grieving. You yeah. show desire. You show, show violence. You show birth and ecstasy. If you saw it, you'd want to know, you'd want to look further. You'd want to understand what's going on, right? So what, what do you think is lost in not being able to show this? I think what is lost are opportunities. So, for instance, for many years, I was an educator at the Museum of Modern Art, and I gave tours of provocative works, right, to children even, right? So you walk by a Kara Walker mural or, you know, or a Carole Schneeman's Meat Joy, and these artworks have provocative sexual imagery, Carol H. Naiman's work in a celebratory sense and Carol Walker's work talking about um, rape that happened um, during times when black people were enslaved in America, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but in both cases, the imagery is sexual and it can sneak up on you when you're in a gallery space with children. Well, if a child asks a question about one of these artworks, I'm willing to create a conversation about that. You know, it's an open opportunity to talk about what is what is it that we are seeing, 
right? Because these things are in the museum for a reason. So mm-hmm. that all people have to confront them and have some kind of conversation. So in, in the case of Kara Walker's work, you know, you're going to have a conversation that's different with a five-year-old versus a 15-year-old versus an 18-year-old. But those are all useful conversations. By not avoiding sexuality every time a parent comes into a room with artworks that, like, they're going into a room of, of, of a show curated by nasty women. They Mm -hmm. are going there to expect to see some sexual imagery, and there's plenty of sexual imagery in that exhibition. Mm -hmm. What Mm Monty's offered was actually a more deep understanding of, like, the dynamics of power that exists in sexuality. That's what all my videos do. So even whether some of my videos are celebratory and some of them lean in more towards exploring sexual violence. But no matter which direction I go in, what I'm trying to say is let's wear our organs on the outside. Let's talk about these things out in the open where we can manage it. Because guess what? If we did that on a daily basis, maybe we would have been able to protect our right to choose much better because we would already be armed and equipped to talk about these issues across all age groups with no shame. Thanks, Rebecca. And finally, President Joe Biden on Monday will reveal the first image from NASA's new space telescope, the deepest view of the cosmos ever captured. The first image from the $10 billion James Webb Space Telescope is going to show the farthest humanity has ever seen in both time and distance, closer to the dawn of the universe and the edge of the cosmos. The plan is to use the telescope to peer back so far that scientists will get a glimpse of the early days of the universe about 13.7 billion years ago and zoom in on closer cosmic objects, even our own solar system, with sharper focus. And that's some of the news for Monday, July 11, 2022. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineers Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.